Rising. We have a spectacular show for you today. Thanks for starting off the week with us. Brianna Joy Gray, it is wonderful to see you on Monday. <laughs> You're extra nice to me on, on Mondays, Robbie. I'm not mad at it. <laughs> I appreciate you right back. Trying to send, uh, reinforce some good, uh, some good decisions. You're yeah, right you're making it a pleasurable experience. I might have to keep coming back around on Monday. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Well, tell us about the big news. Well, uh, tomorrow is the big day. President Biden is set to officially announce his 2024 re-election bid in a matter of hours. The Washington Post reports that party operatives are, quote, relatively optimistic about the president's chances at this point in the cycle. The Post writes, quote, the overriding concern for many Democrats is ensuring that former President Trump does not return to the White House, and some still see Biden as their best bet. However, new NBC News polling calls into question whether Biden will be able to defeat Trump a second time. Only 41 percent of respondents said they approve of the president's job performance thus far, and a whopping 70 percent said they don't want Biden to run for re-election. That includes 53 percent of former Biden voters. Among the no's, a majority blamed age. Biden is turning 81 years old this November. And while polling shows Trump still pulling ahead of competitors in the GOP primary field, it seems prospective voters aren't too pleased with the Don either. Recent AP University of Chicago's poll Polling reveals 70% of voters and 44% of Republicans also do not want to see the embattled former president run for re-election. What's clear is a large swath of Americans don't want another Biden-Trump matchup, even though that's likely to be exactly what they get. Mm -hmm. Yahoo News YouGov polling finds amongst registered voters that 44% feel exhausted at the prospect <laughs> of a rematch. Just 16% say they're excited. And I, I can't blame them for feeling that way at all. It, it is exhausting, the idea that we could have another Biden-Trump matchup. That'll be three in a row for Trump, you know, first against one of the most unpopular candidates of all time, Hillary Clinton. Trump himself being a not particularly popular right. candidate outside of, yes, candidate outside of, of uh, the, the heavy yeah. MAGA base. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, Joe Biden, too. Uh, it'll be his second time around here. Uh, I think, look, if I, you know, I'm trying to survey the mood of the country. Uh, Biden is very tolerated, mm. <laughs> I, w I would say. Obviously, he. He has some kind of political acumen. He did very well. He, he won, and then he did very well in the midterms up against historical precedents. You would have expected a weaker performance. You know, you can talk about whether that was Dobbs, whether that was Trump's influence, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But clearly, people, um, people don't loathe Biden the way no. they, they loathe some other and political figures, and that's his, his advantage. I do think it's important that age does seem to be driving a lot of the yeah. negativity that Biden is getting, and that's a very different kind of critique than a substantive one. You can say what you want about his age, and I don't think it's just age. It's a little bit, you know, is he also competent? Is his age affecting his um, cognitive abilities and things like that? But I would argue that you're in a much better place if people don't want you to run again simply because you're old than if they substantively disagree with you. And I think that Biden has done a good job, broadly speaking, just talking raw politics, real politics, and being normal, mm -hmm. appealing to normie voters, not really stepping in a lot of the culture war stuff, coming across as a credibly regular guy, especially in contrast to folks like Ron DeSantis, who keeps putting out these kind of bizarre sound bites as America gets to know him more outside of Florida. It's not clear that they're liking what they're seeing. Or Donald Trump, who has his own certain kind of appeal, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't say it's because he's like a regular guy. Well, Biden has the advantage of, uh, I mean, he does have primary challengers 
others, and we're going to talk about that a little bit in a minute, but he's overwhelmingly likely to be renominated yeah. as the Democratic candidate, whereas Trump has to fight for it against DeSantis, maybe others. So uh, some of the messaging I think you're seeing from DeSantis, Trump on Coulter stuff, I don't know that that's a message they're going to lean into in the general mm -hmm. election, but t to win the Republican primary, you got to go to war with Disney, apparently, if you're Ron DeSantis. Yeah, that's but even, strategy. even outside of the Disney stuff, I'm not sure if you caught that clip. Ron DeSantis was asked about um, polls to show him disfavorably against Donald Trump. And he, he said, oh, uh, you know, I'm not even running yet, so why are you asking me this? But he said it in this weird kind of whiny, almost like little kiddish tone, and that was going viral, not because of the substance of what he said, but because his affect doesn't seem to be landing with folks in the way that, you know, we were, we were previewing some Trump clips before we started yeah. rolling today, and we both couldn't help but chuckle. He has this certain kind of absurdist, funny thing about him that makes you want to watch him, even if you object to substantive politics. And, and by the way, Robbie, I think you're absolutely right to evoke 2016. Back in 2016, the Democratic Party decided it was their choice. It was her turn to mm -hmm. run a, a historically unfavorable candidate, having the hubris to think, well, anybody can beat Trump. Trump is a joke. They wanted Trump. They Hillary wanted Trump. preferred Trump. They pied piper Trump into existence, and now they have to live with the with what they wrought. And to be going heading into that again, Biden is unfavorable, disfavored for other kinds of reasons than Hillary Clinton. I'm not sure it's a, an exact one to one. No, I don't. But think to so play that kind of game, to play with fire and say we're going to put forward a candidate who we know folks don't want overwhelmingly, you know, majorities of, of Biden mm -hmm. voters don't want Biden again. And to know that another Trump campaign is coming down, it, 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 it suggests to me another, a similar kind of hubris, which leads us to the next part of the story, yes. which is that according to a Washington Post report, the DNC has decided it will not hold any primary debates, this despite two official challengers, of course, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Marianne Williamson, who pull at roughly 14 and 5 percent, respectively. respectively. Uh, according to recent data, leftists like former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner are calling the decision undemocratic. I'm inclined to agree. Yeah, this is, uh, what is he afraid of? Look, I, again, and with all respect to Marion Williamson, who's been a guest on our show, and we look forward to having RFK Jr. on our show as well sometime in the future. Uh, we've already reached out to his people. We're going to make that happen. Um, Biden is overwhelmingly likely to be, you know, I, I think even if you're a fan of Marianne or a fan of RFK Jr., you'd have to concede it's very likely he'll get the nomination again. So what is, what is he worried about? What does he have to fear from, from, from engaging in the practice of democracy, sharing a stage with, with people who aren't polling like 1%, th those are some healthy numbers there. Yeah, I would argue that the numbers make it more obvious how mm -hmm. undemocratic the Democratic Party is being. But I think their bet is that voters are going to be less put off by the blatantly anti-democratic moves of the party than they would be Biden being exposed, not by Trump, but by people on the left hmm. who he who have more cre credibility on some of the areas in which he's lacking, including by, uh, the critiques he's gotten from the anti-war movement. And to date, most of the high-profile anti-war vo voices have been on the right. And that has made it easier, I think, for a lot of liberals to ignore them, to write them off as silly or Putin puppets and things like that. But to have a Kennedy on a debate stage, bringing up substantive concerns about how, uh, about America's foreign policy, I think could be 
in their eyes, devastating to Biden's general election chances. And I also think they might have some concerns about one or both of these characters, uh, one, of the, one or both of these candidates doing a dirty break. And that fundamentally, they don't want to give them the platform to get national recognition if they are then going to turn around and run as an independent candidate. We spoke to Dave Weigel last week, who's a reporter for Semaphore. He was there for the RFK Jr. announcement speech. Um, if you didn't watch that video from us, go back and watch it. It was a really good interview. Uh, what Dave said that I thought was so interesting and insightful is that the crowd there for the RFK Jr. announcement, Dave said it was, and he's, he's a <laughs> veteran political reporter, said it was the most ideologically diverse mm -hmm. um, that he's ever seen. It was not just there were a lot of right-wing Trump people there, but there were also a lot of people who'd voted for Biden and wouldn't do so again. Uh, a lot of people who didn't don't like Trump or Biden. It was a it was a mixed crowd of people who are attracted to RFK Jr. Maybe they're attracted to the name, or that's what first drew them to him. They're attracted to uh, the very stridently different course he has articulated on uh, COVID uh, mitigation, and then also, as you said. Um, uh, Ukraine and, and war, and he said yeah. he said in, in an interview or in that speech, he said, "Look, I, 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 I Trump's been criticized a lot. I agree with some of those criticism. I don't agree with others." Right. And then he talked about where he would be different from yeah. uh, from Biden and on environmental issues. So sure. much of the bullying to vote for Biden in 2020 was the the, the world is going to end, climate crisis. I, just hold your nose and vote for him. Noam Chomsky was saying this. He said it to me on my show. We had a long debate about it. If only for the environment, you have to vote for Biden. We're seconds left on the doomsday clock with respect <laughs> to the environment. And then he goes and does things like open up drilling with ConocoPhillips in Alaska. And uh, RFK Jr. spent his entire career being an environmental lawyer. So there are some real substantive criticisms that Biden would have to face if there were a debate. The mm. question is, is there going to be enough public pressure from Democrats who want to really be able to vet the options instead of having a coordination within the own, own if party? If their numbers go up, one. if their numbers go up, if they're, the support that uh, for Marianne and RFK Jr., um, maybe he gets shamed into having to do it. Um, at least even the, the refusal to do it will look even more anti-democratic, um, anti self-serving yeah. and pathetic if yeah. he still puts them off at that point. So we'll keep watching for that. I have my radar coming up next. Stay with us. Here's some major breaking media news. Tucker Carlson is out at Fox News. They just released a statement. His last show was last Friday, so there will be no episodes of Tucker Carlson tonight or any other night. He is parting ways with Fox News entirely. Uh, Brianna, this is huge news. Tucker Carlson has the top-rated cable news show. Um, he's he's had that show now since about 2016. He was a Fox News contributor going back to 2009. Prior to that, obviously, he had a, he had a show on CNN. He had a show on MSNBC. MSNBC. He helped found the Daily Caller um, in between, which I actually worked for in its kind of much earlier uh, inception. Uh, and then committed fully to Fox News, uh, became really their most prominent uh, opinion anchor, um, being someone ideologically uh, connected to Trumpist populism and uh, and foreign, Trump's foreign policy and all of those issues. Um, this is this is huge news, totally unexpected. Obviously, we had the Dominion settlement last week, so we can just speculate about why this is. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of speculation that this is 
connected to the Dominion um, lawsuit, um, although really uh, Lou Dobbs, who no longer works at Fox News, and Maria Bartiromo, who still does uh, for now, um, and Janine Pirro, another Fox uh, person, were more significant in the, in the Dominion stuff than Tucker. But um, nevertheless, um, wow, I'm speechless. So, right. The implication is, I think the obvious implication uh, is that this is somehow connected to the fact that Fox News just lost nearly $800 million as a consequence of the Dominion lawsuit. And to be clear, it's not just what aired. It's, it's not that Fox was trying to avoid potential liability for airing things that ended up not being true. It really was the text messages and behind-the-scene conversations from people like Tucker Carlson, although not exclusively Tucker Carlson, that lended credibility to this argument and legal liability mm -hmm. to this idea that they knowingly put false things on the air. That's what the liability is for, not the idea that sometimes newscasters make mistakes or that facts end up being wrong. Certainly, there's been no shortage of fake news on networks that are liberal-leaning, Hunter Biden laptop story, all of this that we've covered even earlier in this show, but that um, tr uh, Tucker and others talking, texting about how they didn't believe that the voter fraud claims were real, but still airing segments about it was uh, libelous um, and something that made them legally accountable. So people have also been pointing to the fact that his Friday show seemed to be rather run-of-the-mill, 420-style show as evidence that maybe he didn't know this was coming and that Bill, this was sudden. Bill O'Reilly, when he was pushed out over sexual misconduct allegations, he was not given a final show. He was, you know, taken off, and, uh, and, and maybe that was phrased as kind of a suspension, but then it was never—then that, that was it. Um, his, yeah. uh, his, his poster went dark. Um, so, right, that would lead one to speculate that it wasn't—it wasn't planned— any more recently than this yeah. weekend. Um, I mean, look, we, we we don't know for certain that it's connected to the lawsuit. Um, they didn't, you know, they didn't have to admit. They, they had to admit that things were said on the network that were not true. But it wasn't. Um, there wasn't a lot of apologizing going on. There was a, you know, yeah. a massive amount was paid to settle the case before it gets to the point where a jury orders them to do something even more painful. So, in some sense, I, I don't know. They weren't totally out of the woods because there were going to be additional lawsuits, but it's not like like they weren't made to do this. They, I, I don't know. So, I, I truly so for don't example, because I know I was speaking in rather vague terms. So, for example, the kind of thing that I think might have gotten more focus on Tucker Carlson specifically is he sent a text on November 9th. Um, of 2020, saying, uh, uh, referencing uh, Powell's Dominion claim, saying, quote, the software, SHIT, is absurd. Later that night, Carlson said on television, quote, we don't know anything about the software that many say was rigged. We don't know. We ought to find out. So again, that's a, more of this kind of evidence that I think might have been really difficult for Fox had the case gone to trial, where you have newscasters saying, I don't actually believe this. I don't think it's credible. But, and right, having but it a different didn't go to trial. Line. They avoided... Yeah. Because they settled for nearly yeah. $800 million. And so there's, if you're internally thinking, is Tucker Carlson worth the squeeze? He's very profitable to the network. But the question is, do you want to ha continue to have exposure that can get you mm -hmm. having to pay $800 million nearly? I mean, it could be, it could be on his part. He could, maybe he was, again, I'm just totally speculating. Maybe he was unhappy with how things were handled on the Fox News side of it. Maybe he didn't like, 
maybe he felt like he was being thrown under the bus or they weren't Fox wasn't doing enough to protect him. Um, something yeah. of that nature. Maybe there he felt muzzled pressure. by them and he wanted to speak out more about it. Um, maybe or, or the other way, or maybe he felt pressured to play to these claims when he didn't really want to because they put pressure on him and he's mad at them and now he's getting blamed. I yeah, really don't know. But this is this is earth shattering. This is something I would have never expected um, at this point. He's their he's their top guy. Um, yeah, there definitely was, as we learned from the Dominion lawsuit um, discovery, the, uh, some tension about how to handle Donald Trump with Tucker Carlson expressing a lot of frustration with the network's view that it had to embrace Trumpism mm -hmm. despite differences of opinion about things like stop the steal. So two days before the Capitol riot, Carlson wrote to a colleague that, quote, we are very, very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights. I truly can't wait. Now we just had T Trump and Tucker Carlson sit down a week or two ago for the first long form mm -hmm. interview uh, that Donald Trump gave. And I think there was some interesting, there are some interesting questions about how much Tucker wants to be in the position where he continues to kind of carry the banner for Trumpism, whether or not he feels like it is imperiling his own journalism, journalistic credibility to have to continue to play that role, whether or not he actually does want to and thinks it's profitable and good, but it's Fox News has decided they're no longer going to do Trumpism all the way. He just interviewed Trump. He just interviewed Elon. Um, you know, the show, the, the show was feeling, to my mind, very much focused on like not backward look very like you know where's the Republican Party heading is it going to be Trump is it going to be DeSantis it looked to me like Tucker and his hour of television every night on Fox was set up to play a pretty significant right. role so in that so this is what's gonna so happen this is going wild. forward it's I mean wild. if you believe that Tucker Carlson was genuinely frustrated with having to you know, support Trumpism and support Trump as it were. Does him departing from Fox News mean that you're going to get a more unfiltered, critical position on Donald Trump? Does this bode well for Ron DeSantis? You know, is there another person who Donald Trump, uh, sorry, who uh, Tucker Carlson might kind of get behind politically, or are we just going to get a more impartial, fair I mean, it, critique of all of It really the depends on who ends up getting that. I mean, if for instance, if like Mike Huckabee was the one who suddenly got that slot, I'm not saying that's particularly likely, then it would be all Trump all the time. But I guess I'm saying he something like different. A theological belief. I'm not asking what Fox is going to do. I believe that Tucker Carlson's influence is independent and separate from Fox's influence. And what Tucker Carlson chooses to do going forward, presuming that he's not going to go sit in his house in Maine and just play Wordle for the end of all time. Maybe he's going to run for president. That, he's, that he is going to continue to have influence in politics. And if he continues to have, whether it's a podcast or an independent news yeah. show or a rumble show or whatever it is, I'm very interested to see what political takes he's going to have and how much it diverges from the, the point of view that Fox News right. has. If, if, and is Fox News, as a consequence of what happened in the Dominion suit, going to have a different approach to the primary than they might otherwise have had? If he wants to still have a significant effect on the discourse, you're right. He absolutely has that ability. Um, and again, from, you know, from watching his show over the last few weeks, it didn't seem like his enthusiasm for doing this has dimmed whatsoever. So, and as, as I just said, it's possible. People have wondered. So every now and then he gets included in a poll about who would you support for the Republican nomination. It is possible that he would maybe like to run for a president. People have speculated wildly. He's always denied it. He's always said, no, absolutely not. I would never do that. But uh, something like this, Again, because it's seismic, makes you really wonder what's going on. So, you know, we're going to get, I'm sure we're going to get more details 
on why this uh, might be in the coming days, but um, this is this is really big yeah, news. Yeah, look, one la last thing I want to say is that people really value Fox News. Obviously, mm -hmm. it is the most popular news show in America, and Tucker Carlson's was the most or among the most popular of the of Fox shows. So when there is a division, when two parties are at odds, it's going to be really interesting to see what the audience decides, who the audience decides is in the right here, and if that creates some kind of faction. So I'm very, very interested to see what you guys watching think is going to happen, what is driving this, and whether or not you would continue to want to follow mm -hmm. Tucker Carlson and take his advice as a newscaster more or less than the institution of Fox I mean, I, I will if say, they end up having any conflicts of beliefs or interests. I mean, he gave a platform to some kind of you know, contrarian that, that is, uh, for instance, on foreign policy, that is now very much associated with the right, that was to a significant degree his due. Like, mm -hmm. it was his personal attitude on those matters was very much not in step with like the old kind of neocon consensus. He did meaningfully shift the foreign policy consensus on the right in his direction, in the in the libertarian or populist or not the non-interventionist direction. Um, you know, he put, I, I was on uh, the, I was on his hour of TV a bunch of times in back in like 2018, 2019, I think, um, when the Covington scandal happened. He had me on the next night to talk about it. Um, some other th he had me on to talk about some foreign policy things where we really did see eye to eye. Uh, obviously, I don't agree with everything that was said on the show or all the guests he had, but. Um, he did. Uh, he did give a, a platform on foreign policy to me and some people of my views. So, it's yeah, interesting. yeah, it is interesting. I mean, and so many of his comments that were explicitly critical of Fox News, saying maybe Sean and Laura went too far. And this is uh, mm -hmm. uh, what Murdoch wrote. I mean, there was all of this internal dissonance uh, where people were sniping at each other, making judgments of how each other handled various news items over at Fox News. So perhaps it shouldn't be so surprising that. There are, there are staffing changes that are the consequence of this. It would be naive to think that the only thing about the, this lawsuit was that it was embarrassing for Fox as a whole. There are also private emails that are being known to other colleagues, and there's going to be implications for kind of talking badly about each other and potentially about the boss and the broader— I mean, if, if they're getting rid of all—Hannity <laughs> said things about yeah. uh, uh, January 6th stuff at the day that wasn't being said, that was different than what was on the show. It's true of Laura Ingram. So I don't yeah, know. Yeah, one leftist Jeet here actually pointed out that he thinks it's unfair to make Tucker take the fall for the decisions that came from the very top of the network. I think there's sure. something to that, but the top of the network is the top of the network, and they're yeah. the ones that get to make the decisions. And to be clear, I'm not sure that that's what happened, but we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll know more certainly in the coming hours, and I bet we'll talk about this tomorrow and all week. More Rising right after this. Robbie, what's on your radar today? Well, the decision by former national security officials to warn the public that the Hunter Biden laptop story looked like Russian disinformation was possibly motivated by the timely intervention of then-Biden campaign advisor, now Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. That's according to Representative Jim Jordan, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, who released recent testimony from one of the letter's signatories, former CIA Director Michael Morell. Now, Jordan and his colleagues contacted Blinken about this last Thursday. Quote, we are examining that public statement signed by 51 former intelligence officials that falsely discredited a New York Post story regarding Hunter Biden's laptop as supposed Russian disinformation, Jordan said in his statement to Blinken. 
Quote, as part of our oversight, we have learned that you played a role in this inception of the statement while serving as a Biden campaign advisor, and we therefore request your assistance with our oversight. Hmm. Well, Blinken has some explaining to do. Recall that when the New York Post Hunter Biden laptop story was released just a few weeks before the 2020 election, Joe Biden's allies mustered all their forces to discredit it. Mainstream journalists and pundits told their viewers to be wary of the story and said the laptop was unverified, suspicious. Tech companies like Facebook and Twitter, they suppressed the New York Post story in part because they had been warned by the FBI that Russia would try to influence the election by promoting false information. A top Twitter executive, Jim Baker, a former FBI employee actually, he led the effort within the company to suppress it, the story on that basis. But one of the most important components of this pernicious effort to treat a true story as Russian disinformation was an open letter released in October of 2020. That letter was signed by 50 current and past intelligence officials. The signatories included John Brennan, former director of the CIA, James Clapper, former director of national intelligence, and Leon Panetta, who was defense secretary at that time. Now, the letter famously concluded that the New York Post Hunter Biden laptop story has all the classic earmarks of a Russian disinformation operation. Note that the ex-spy masters and defense ministers did try to guard against total embarrassment by using cautious phrasing. They didn't say the story was definitively Russian disinformation, just that it looked like Russian disinformation. This caution was completely abandoned by media outlets that published the letter. Politico, for instance, headlined its coverage thus, Hunter Biden's story is Russian disinfo, dozens of former intelligence officials say. Democrats, including Joe Biden himself, seized on this defense. Nothing to see here, it's Russian disinformation. Most notably, Biden played the CIA people say it's disinfo card when he debated Donald Trump. Watch this. So don't give me the stuff about how you're this innocent baby. Joe, they're calling you a corrupt politician. Nobody. Hey, President Trump, I want to stay hell. on the issue Excuse of race. Me. We're Take talking about the, the issue. laptop from hell. President Trump, Nobody. we're talking about race right now, and I do want to stay on the issue of race. President Trump, you've just... And I have to respond to that. Please. Because, look, Very there are 50 former national intelligence folks who said that what this he's accusing me of is a Russian plant. They have said that this is, has all the four, five former heads of the CIA, both parties, say what he's saying is a bunch of garbage. Nobody believes it except the, his and his good friend, Rudy Gianni. You mean the laptop is now yeah. another Russia, Russia, Russia hoax? And that's exactly be. what, is this that's where exactly you're going? what This is told. where he's going. The laptop that, right. is Russia, yes. Russia, Russia? Gentlemen, I want to stay on the issue of race. You okay? have to be kidding. Mr. Here we go President? again with Russia. But according to Jim Jordan's questioning of Morrell, the Biden campaign itself may have had something to do with that letter's formation. Jordan has claimed in a press release that Blinken called Morrell about the Hunter Biden laptop story in October 2020. Morrell testified, according to Jordan, that he did not have plans to write the open letter until after he talked to Blinken. Morrell further explained that one of his goals of writing the letter explicitly was to help Joe Biden get elected. Now, Democrats have pushed back and suggested that Jim Jordan is cherry-picking quotes from this interview with Morrell. And to be clear, Jim Jordan has not released the full transcript, as far as I can tell. At the very least, it wasn't linked in this press release. So I don't want to have to take this on blind faith from Jim Jordan. So let's go ahead and please release everything they have, because if the letter from ex-CIA officials that provided cover for the media and Joe Biden to ignore the laptop 
laptop's story as Russian disinfo was itself orchestrated or even indirectly encouraged by the Biden campaign's own efforts, well, I think a lot of people will feel like their suspicions are at long last being confirmed. So this was some interesting news from last week. Uh, discussing the formation of this letter. Honestly, it has some echoes of the Proximal Origins paper, mm -hmm. um, which we're learning now that they had a, they talked to, to Fauci and people in his network about doing this letter, and it sounded like the, the authors of, of the Proximal Origins paper that said it was not a lab leak, that said it was uh, from the uh, animal spillover, were not really inclined to do that, and then they talked to the health officials and they said, okay, we're gonna do that. That's the vibe we're getting here, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. again, we need to see that full transcript transcript um, because it was kind of selectively quoted and um, you know you could absolutely do that in a way that makes this look um, right. more incriminating than it is. If, if there was a knowing political effort to put together a letter that folks know is going to be taken on faith and then whatever nuance and caveats exist in the letter are going to be um, erased when the story is picked mm -hmm. up by the media. I mean, we know this to be true. The saying, a lie goes around the world twice before the truth gets out of the stables or whatever it is. Yeah. We know that people are going to latch on to an excuse in the exact way you demonstrated various media outlets did. And so compellingly, I, I had completely forgotten about that clip from the debates to show how Joe Biden predictably exploited this letter in order to prevent himself from having to answer real questions about what was going on at the time. He did a listen to the experts. He said, well, he the experts are the saying. Experts. And if it comes out that there was some coordination with the experts, then that's incredibly damning. And looking back at Donald Trump, who, because of his affect and way of talking is often dismissed as as, uh, as not credible, being completely right, 100% frankly. 100% correct. Like, yeah. You cannot argue with a single thing that he said in that clip. Russia has been used as a... Uh, as, as a excuse, as a, as a fulcrum from which Democrats have pivoted from real criticism for years now. It is dispiriting to think that we're still playing these kinds of games and that only now might there be a modicum of accountability for folks who have been using this strategy to win elections in a way that's never characterized as stealing or inappropriate or any anything like that, despite the fact that millions of Americans were misled repeatedly throughout sure. this process. Sure. And look, you know, maybe there was nothing, there might have been no uh, legal wrongdoing here. The, you know, the, Blinken was a member of the campaign. He he had the right to encourage his, you know, friends and CIA buddies to come to Biden's defense. But what they said in that letter, um, which again was the letter was carefully worded, the media coverage was not, and what Biden said in that clip we, we played was not careful at all. Uh, that was used to gaslight the American people about the validity of this story, and that is, you know, that is something there should be at least at least people can reckon with that yeah. as they're choosing, you know, as a, who to vote for and which policies to support. Yeah. Lincoln is now the Secretary of State, was, you know, rewarded for his efforts to help elect Biden, perhaps at any cost, even the cost of being really, really wrong about whether Russia was interfering in the laptop story. Yeah, it is, it is odd, too, because I think that the argument that the salacious nature of a lot of the laptop reporting didn't really have anything to do with Biden and it was a family matter and it was inappropriate. I think those arguments are so much stronger. Mm -hmm. You know, Biden's son's struggle with addiction shouldn't have any bearing on Biden's ability to be president. 
But the choice to suppress so much of this information, the revelations that came out in the context of the Twitter files, the decisions that were made to literally suppress it on social media, those have become a bigger story. And liberals who wonder why there's an appetite for someone like RFK Jr. talking about dismantling the CIA, dismantling these organizations mm -hmm. that have played such a hand in misleading the American public, it shouldn't come as a surprise. And now we're in a place where there's an information economy, where there's a complete and total lack of trust. And there could be some really bad things that come out of that. But until Democrats look inward at the role that they've played in all of this, instead of just pointing fingers across the aisle at misinformation, misinformation, Russia, 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 I'm a little fearful of what might come out of this next um, presidential campaign. I saw a Politico headline today, House GOP warns FBI to stay out of controversial surveillance talks. And it's about how the FBI's bad Bad relationship with the House GOP means they're going to have a hard time reauthorizing this kind of surveillance mm. program, which I say, good, mm. don't don't <laughs> authorize any surveillance uh, program of any kind. Uh, I, I think it, it is actually heartening to me as a libertarian to see uh, Republicans having a little bit more skepticism of uh, of our of our intelligence yeah. officials and they're they're the spy master type people, um, and they should they should extend that skepticism to a lot of what. Uh, the national law enforcement is doing rather than only care about it if it is designed to like hurt Trump in some way. Yeah, absolutely. More rising right after this. Last Thursday, Twitter saw a purge of previously verified accounts lose their blue checks. However, just two days after implementing a mandatory paid subscription to maintain the blue check mark, the company's owner, Elon Musk, decided to give back the coveted checks to Twitter's biggest celebrities after they evidently decided to forego paying for the $8 per month verification. Only the accounts with the most followers enjoyed seeing their blue checks be reinstated sans subscription, including Chrissy Teigen, Stephen King, and even LeBron James. Regardless of whether those users want a blue check mark, Elon Musk has decided they should have one anyway. The chief twit is trolling users like Lil Nas X and Bette Midler, who have complained about getting the check marks for free. Musk pranked longtime New York Times columnist Paul Krugman, who took to Twitter and posted, quote, so my check has reappeared. I had nothing to do with that and am definitely not paying, to which Elon replied with a picture of a crying baby. Even universities like MIT received the blue check. Their account tweeted, uh, quote, we did not subscribe to Twitter blue. <laughs> this is... Uh, this dynamic is, is, is wild. So again, for those of you who are like blessedly not online enough to really follow what's going on, originally the point of the blue check was to make sure that folks who pro proclaim they were a real person, a known person, a celebrity, whatever, could be identified as such. So I can't just say, change my uh, my name to LeBron James and pretend to be LeBron James, right? There's a value in knowing that you're following someone who is really the, who sure. they are. And that's not just big, famous people. This also is maybe a journalist with only 1,000 or 2,000 followers. It's not necessarily about wealth and fame. It's about identifying that someone who is a public figure, no matter how big or small, is who they say they are. Elon Musk, because of a choice to switch to a subscription model as opposed to a advertising model, has decided to make everyone pay for it. And he is pay for the, the privilege of having a blue check, which he framed as democratizing, saying it shouldn't just be wealthy elites that get the blue check. Everyone should be able to have access to the blue check, which is a nice idea, except it undermines the value of the blue check, which was never about elitism, but, as a, but to be a form of identification, right? 
Okay. Sure. Now we're in a situation where because people are so kind of against Elon Musk for various reasons, political reasons, his style, whatever, after they decided not to pay for the blue check, Elon Musk has chosen to give the biggest accounts blue checks anyway, right. which completely undermines his Although argument my, that it's anti-elite. I think this is, in some places, this is confusing, right? Because they 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 remained, right? So it's it's like well, it's been like on and off. So yeah, so we don't know. So some of these celebrity people were saying like, I don't pay for this. I but they might be lying. Well, so this was a it big thing with lying. LeBron James. When LeBron James, before before D-Day, which was, you know, 420, yeah. before the day that all the checks were removed, LeBron James had proclaimed that he thought this whole thing was dumb, that people basically, he's right, that people come to these to, to, to Twitter as a website and make Twitter valuable because people like LeBron James are on it, and therefore he's not going to pay for the $8. So when his check persisted after 420, people started calling him out as a liar. And he was like, wait, 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 no, I promise, I swear I'm not paying for it, and it turns out that a lot of celebrities discovered that they kept their check because Elon Musk, on some level, recognizes the initial value of the blue but check. But we don't know. But we don't. We don't know for sure in all of these cases. Some of these people, I suspect, don't manage their Twitter accounts personally and have teams who were subscribed to Twitter Blue to boost their. No, well, we do know because subsequently several other of these people have managed to get their checks taken off, and there has been an on and off, on and off. So, for example, Chrissy Teigen managed to get hers off and was like, I, I got mine down finally. LeBron James, people were doubting him at first, but he had some follow-up tweets where apparently he validated, he got some validation that this this was, in fact, what had happened. So I, 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 I believe that there's probably some people who don't manage their own accounts and don't know what's going on. But Elon Musk has admitted, to be clear, he has admitted he, that for he Stephen personally King paid and a few. Or some yes. high-profile accounts to keep their. But I, I don't. I don't think he. I think he paid. For, this isn't better. But I think he did that to embarrass those people, not to. Okay. Keep well, them. I don't. I don't know. He's been walking around. And a I lot think of he his did followers. It he thought it was funny. A lot of his followers have been arguing. These these people are rich. Elon Musk has argued these people are rich. Why are they whining about it? He called somebody a baby, right, for com mm -hmm. for complaining about it. Well, if they're so rich, then why are you paying out of your pocket one billionaire to another eight dollars so they can have the privilege of a blue check? On some level, aren't you acknowledging that the whole point of the blue check system was because it enriches the value of your website mm -hmm. to for people to be able to log in and know that they're following actually LeBron James and not some twelve year old who is a big fan of LeBron James. My question is, aren't we just, this is the problem with Elon, we're, we're just, he said he was gonna change the system, but now so now we have a, a checkmark, a system where a bunch of random celebrity people are verified through no doing of their own, and a bunch of people are not. That was what everyone complained, that was what his people were complaining about with the previous system, that it was not democratic because people were just being awarded uh, the verification. But that's what's happening now, because Elon handpicked some people exactly. to just get it. Like, it's exactly. the same exact thing as it was before. Exactly. Now, he would argue, and I think some of his you know, supporters would argue, well, everyone can have a blue check. All you have to do is pay $8. And I would argue, sure, but for what? Mm -hmm. So for instance, I have always paid for a blue check, I think for about two years now. I started back in 2001 because I have a podcast, I'm a content creator, and the blue check actually is a service. Twitter Blue is a service that it's not about the check. It's about being able to post longer videos and other kinds of like small differences, you can, an edit button, things like that. But for me, the biggest 
value is being able to post a video that's longer than two minutes and 20 seconds. And a lot of media companies also pay for the service because they post longer 10 minute clips, news outlets, et cetera. A lot of times the clips are longer than the prescribed two minutes and 20 seconds. Okay. But now the value of the brand is so tanked that there is a shame around even paying for the Twitter blue as a service the way I've been doing for years. So a bunch of people, including a bunch of leftists, decided to attack me as somehow a great lover and like acolyte of Elon Musk you were for continuing the service. Too, for being too in the pocket of <laughs> a big, big Elon, Musk. exactly. Oh God, it's, so it's ridiculous. So funny. But that's how that's how much damage he's done to his own brand that people who even like the value of the service of Twitter Blue, like myself, are feeling pressured to relinquish it because of the the mm. po political implications of subscribing to what I think is actually a useful service. Yeah, I, I don't think it's a useful service and I'm not going to pay for it. I, I find myself using Twitter less and less. Actually, I was reflecting on this with some of my uh, colleagues at Reason on Friday because we were all kind of talking about BuzzFeed. End of BuzzFeed does feel like the end of a certain era where it was social media, primarily Facebook, not Twitter, mm. but social media was the business model for online news websites from like 2010 to 2019. And uh, honestly, like if you don't if you, if you don't work for one of those companies, you, you are probably undervaluing or underrating how important Facebook was to the model of places like of, of everybody mm -hmm. for years. And now that social media doesn't drive any traffic at all whatsoever to websites, um, everybody has to come up with like different business models. We were talking about this too a little bit last week. Um, but so the 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 lesson here is that these. So the social media platforms aren't providing a lot of value to journalists, to writers anyway. So I don't know why. I don't know why you would pay for it um, unless you want. I guess you want to post longer video clips. You said, but it's not going to drive traffic. Nobody's going to go to your. Not enough people go to your YouTube well, page. Well, I don't know. It, right? My my podcast. They could see the video and on Twitter, but they're not going to go my to the video. My entire podcast reach uh, is largely because we had a viral clip from like episode 10, a viral clip of a debate with Noam Chomsky. But when was that? That was before I got Twitter Blue, right. but I got Twitter Blue shortly thereafter when it became available. It wasn't available back right, in 2020. Like 20, yeah, 2020? I, but as soon as it became available in like early 2020, I signed up. Yeah. Uh, and there have been a number of viral clips as a consequence since then. I, right. I am, my biggest platform is Twitter. I have, you know, 350,000 Twitter followers and like fewer well, than 100,000 YouTube followers. We had a clip from this followers. show go viral on Twitter, but it didn't boost what no, matters for the it doesn't for boost the, YouTube. It does right. boost subscribers, and yeah. you know my my only job at the time was my Patreon. So it, it absolutely has an effect on your broader reach and your subscriber base, especially when you're not in the mainstream. Yeah. And you know, Joy and Reed isn't having you on your show to tell people about what you're putting out there in the world. So one other part of the story that it's worth noting is that Elon not only restored some blue checks to folks, he falsely said that they were paying subscribers, misrepresenting them to try to basically exploit the fact that he knows that there is a negative association with having subscribed to Twitter Blue to, to attack his enemies, to attack his detractors, people who had been critical of him. And so there's now some question about whether or not that was appropriate, whether or not that might even violate some oh, kind I of legal, all the, legal yeah. implications no way. of that. No way it does. But there are people like Mehdi Hassan, um, you know, Drill, LeBron James, et cetera, who not only did he reinstate the accounts, he misrepresented them as subscribers. So we'll have to continue to follow seem, this and see yeah, what happened they, there. They seem uh, big mad. 
Yeah, uh, look. There's, a, there's a big mad and there's a cry more and honestly <laughs> nobody looks like they're yeah. putting their best foot forward here and it's I, probably just time to I, step I, I agree. the F away from I, the... I, I think that what Elon is doing is silly because it is undermining his own site. But some of the people in the reactions to this, it's clear that they're rooting against Twitter. I'm not rooting against Twitter. Twitter, I think, is an incredible website. It's so democratizing. It's so important for independent media. It's, let, it's launched so many careers. It really does allow the everyday person to have direct access to and debate with public intellectuals, journalists, celebrities, whomever it is. It's important. And the problem with the blue check stuff drama is that it's undermining the value of the website. So there are some people who are like, you're a terrible person for buying the blue check, but who are very much still on Twitter, creating t content for Twitter that drives advertisers to Twitter and are also making Elon Musk money. Musk money. And it's like, I respect the decision to just log off and not use Twitter yeah, anymore, I'm... but there's something deeply confused and hypocritical about all of this. And I think that what an ideal outcome would be is not owning Musk per se, but Musk realizing what the value of this thing that he bought actually is and trying to restore it instead of it being down 50% in value since he's Getting bought it. A little exhausted with, uh, with <laughs> this increasingly ridiculous drama. I'm ready for another site to take over. <laughs> uh, more rising after this. President Biden ordered the evacuation of U.S. Embassy employees on Sunday, where special forces swept in and out of the Capitol with helicopters on the ground for less than an hour. No shots were fired and no major casualties were reported, but thousands of private American citizens remain. Biden tweeted, today on my orders, the United States military conducted an operation to extract U.S. government personnel from Khartoum in response to the situation in Sudan. I'm grateful for the commitment of our embassy staff and the skill of our service members who brought them to safety. The evacuation comes as battles between two rival Sudanese commanders had forced the closing of the main international airport and left roads out of the country in control of armed fighters. The skirmishes have killed more than 400 people. Biden had ordered American troops to evacuate embassy personnel after receiving a recommendation from his national security team with no end in sight to the fighting. The White House said this morning that the situation in Sudan is not conducive for a large-scale military response at this time. Here to help us break down the situation is Alden Young, non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute and political and economic historian of Africa. Welcome, Alden. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, you know, regrettably, so much of Western media coverage is... Uh, shallow, shall we say, with respect to uh, foreign policy. So I wondered if you could take us a few steps back and help us understand what the origin of this conflict is. Uh, the origins in Sudan, the conflict in Sudan, unfortunately, go back to the um, to the end of the Bashir regime, and particularly the war, long war in Darfur, um, which broke out in 2003. And unfortunately, international mediation in Sudan has often focused on bringing armed groups together and neglecting civil society. And in 2019, when the Bashir regime finally fell after 30 years of rule, uh, through massive uh, civil disobedience, civil protests, a huge outpouring across the country, the negotiations were done largely behind closed doors and brought to power uh, several different armed movements, the Sudanese armed forces, which had been a backbone of Bashir's regime, and these militias that Bashir had created, paramilitias that Bashir, Bashir had created uh, during the long Sudanese civil wars that exist outside of the control of the regular armed forces. 
and General Hamidi uh, Hamdan Daglo, the head of the Rapid Support Forces, is the leader of the largest militia in Sudan. So these were two uh, militia groups that helped to uh, overturn the Bashir regime. And now the issue, as I understand it, is figuring out how to integrate these respective kind of uh, paramilitary and military groups into one under kind of a more uh, civilian leadership. Unfortunately, for four years, there's been talk of a civilian transition. And both of these men, uh, Abdel Fattah Burhan and Hamdan Daglo signed an agreement saying that they would turn over power to civilian authorities. They were supposed to be a two-year interim period, but after two years in October 2021, both of these men overthrew the civilian government. And while they claim that they're working for a civilian transition, and they frequently negotiate with international uh, mediators, the U.S., uh, the European Union, Saudi Arabia, UAE, saying that they want to bring about a civilian transition, there's been no sign that they actually want to bring about a civilian transition. And we have to remember that both of these men are creatures of the Bashir regime. They were uh, the military backbone of Bashir, even if they participated in April 2019 in overthrowing the Bashir regime. So in many ways, we see a continuation of the kind of repressive military state that Bashir created. So the State Department is evacuating U.S. diplomatic officials, but a lot of Americans remain in the country. Uh, what, what do you think is the current level of, of risk or danger for, uh, for, for U.S. citizens who are there right now? The risk is incredibly high. There were, by some estimates, 16,000 American citizens living in Khartoum, or living in Sudan, uh, before the violence broke out about a week ago. Uh, some, some of them have been able to reach the border by land to Egypt. There have been reports that some have been able to enter Ethiopia, though many people are being turned away from the Ethiopian border. Many people who do not have their correct or full documents with them are it's unable for them to leave. The situation in Khartoum is incredibly unstable. Fighting is happening in residential neighborhoods. Even the embassy staff of various countries have been attacked. Uh, UN staff has been attacked. And it took, um, you know, it took a military intervention just to evacuate our own embassy personnel. But I think it's really uh, dangerous that we're leaving behind so many Americans. And I had hoped that maybe the Biden administration would take on the greater role of trying to reopen Khartoum International Airport. So what would that take? I know that so there was a you know healthy degree of skepticism about any um, efforts to involve American military in, in uh, events overseas, although this crisis seems to be uh, particularly, um, uh, you know, problematic, it's, it's, it's acute. Uh, the crisis here is, is extreme. So what would it look like? What kind of capacity would the U.S. have to actually create the conditions where the airport could reopen? I think it would have taken an, it would take an intervention in which the U.S. would have to partially enforce a ceasefire between these two parties, the Sudanese Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces, which both claim to wish to have a ceasefire but have been constantly violating it, at least in central Khartoum, allowing uh, humanitarian aid to re-enter the country and allowing those who wish to evacuate to leave. Um, and I think it would have taken, you know, it would take several hundred U.S. troops perhaps to secure uh, the Khartoum airport. And we would need to bring in uh, technical supplies, engineers to help 
um, repair the damaged airport. But I don't think it's something that's beyond American capacity, um, even using our forces in Djibouti. Are there other countries who are looking to intervene because of a need to get their own people out? Are there other international players who might have more ability to do so or an obligation to do so? Or is it exclusively the U.S. who's being looked to right now uh, to aid here? I think other countries are also trying to bring their forces out. We've heard reports earlier today that Egypt is trying to begin an evacuation of its citizens. Egypt also has at least 10,000 uh, residents in Khartoum who are at great risk and great danger. Uh, many people, the alternative solution since the international airports are closed and the trip to the land borders is quite difficult, have been going to other regions within Sudan. So people have been going to places like Wad Medani or other rural areas. And we're seeing a reversal of the kind of patterns that we saw in earlier conflicts in Sudan, where people flooded into the city. Now people are being forced to go into the countryside. But unfortunately, most of the hospitals in Sudan have been damaged. Most, many of them were in Khartoum, so the critical situation, people who have basic uh, diseases like diabetes, for instance, might not be able, uh, we'll, we'll see rising casualties as they won't be able to receive treatment or medicine. Power, the power grid has been deeply damaged. Water, um, the water system has been damaged. And we're seeing reports that while earlier in the conflict, the telecommunication systems and internet have been uh, viable, those are also fading. But I think it's hard for, um, it would be great if there was a multinational effort uh, mm. to restore Khartoum International Airport, perhaps with our uh, allies like the Egyptians, uh, the Emiratis, other African allies, perhaps Ethiopia, or the AU uh, could supply forces. And I think that would make it seem uh, more neutral because I think there's a great fear in Sudan that if you know the Egyptians, for instance, were to intervene, that would be seen to be intervening on one side of the warring parties versus the other. Okay. Well, here's White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby speaking on the issue this morning. And we just heard James say 16,000 Americans still in Sudan. What do we know about their condition? Are any further evacuation efforts planned? Well, first of all, that, that number is a, a, an estimate. We're not actually uh, have great confidence in, in that number uh, per, per, precisely. And we just heard James say 16,000 Americans still. Hmm. So there, Kirby saying that, you know, we're not even sure exactly how many Americans there are. I guess that doesn't give a lot of confidence that we have a good plan to handle the situation if we don't even know the extent of the potential uh, risk to our people because we don't know how many there are. I don't think we have a plan, unfortunately. And I think it's part of a larger pattern in which, um, though there's been a recent turn to Africa, there continues to be a large neglect. But these kind of conflicts are happening more and more. And so I think it's incumbent upon the US government to develop <clears throat> better plans to evacuate. We saw this in Lebanon. We've seen you know, the leaving behind of Americans in places like Yemen. We saw the kind of chaotic evacuation out of Afghanistan. So I think this is something that the U.S. needs to add a higher priority to, figuring out how it can um, return humanitarian aid in these crisis moments and help uh, allow American citizens to evacuate. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Alden Young. We really appreciate your insights into this. Thank you again. Thank you for having me. regulation in terms of what's allowed on air and what isn't. And when you look at what Tucker Carlson and some of these other folks on Fox do, it is very 
very clearly incitement of violence, very clearly incitement of violence. And that is the line that I think we have to uh, be willing to contend with. That was New York progressive Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez being interviewed by MSNBC host and former White House press secretary Jen Psaki. Now that news is out, the Tucker Carlson and Fox are actually parting ways. Daily Caller chief national correspondent Henry Rogers noted on Twitter, Fox's stock has plummeted, uh, bad for business indeed. So we were planning to talk about this AOC soundbite uh, before we got the news about Tucker. And we, we have another segment you can check out for us giving our reaction, reacting in real time to the news that he's out at Fox. We were going to talk about this anyway. You know, this is very, um, and I find Jen Psaki just kind of nodding along to, to what AOC is saying here to be particularly disturbing because she did just work in the government as a spokesperson and she should know, and really AOC ought to know as well as a current government staffer, that you can't just call people saying things you don't like incitement and suggest that it's illegal or should not be. It's quite clearly it's very not bad. incitement it's, of violence, yes. given the fact that no one was able to make anything stick. I'm not, I'm not trying to be funny, but there are plenty of people who absolutely had an appetite to prosecute Donald Trump for incitement of violence. There was an impeachment proceeding. They weren't able to get any of that to stick. Now, that's not to say that what I don't think, I think Donald Trump incited the crowds at 1-6. He certainly, I mean, I, in a non-legal sense, I don't think there's any argument that but right. for Donald Trump acting in the way he did, what happened on that day probably would not have happened. But she but was arguing legally. legally. She was clearly right. saying it makes the le legal definition of incitement to violence, right. which, which, if you know anything about the laws, you and I do, for it to be incitement to violence, it has to have time, place, and manner. You have to call for a, a violent or a criminal act against a specific person or thing at a specific time so that there is, is likelihood of, and people have to be able to hear you. It has to be like it's going to actually happen imminently. Yeah, and, and Donald Trump toe the line and, right. and didn't do those things. Right. A kind of vague, we should do something, not great, maybe, and people do it. That's not incitement to violence. Right. And I, I don't understand why one can't just make the moral argument, yeah. make the argument that it was um, a behavior unbecoming our president of the United States, say that it was dangerous, say that it was a provocation, say whatever you want to say about it. Just say it was wrong. Good, getting over your skis. Say it was wrong. Say it, this was all based on, you know, if we're talking about the January 6th stuff, this was based on a incorrect idea about the election. It was wrong. And you could just make that case without saying, and the people who disagree with me should be, you know, punished legally. But speaking of being punished legally, of course, Fox News did settle this Dominion lawsuit for nearly $800 million, uh, presumably because they thought there was significant risk of being punished legally as a consequence of this uh, defamation lawsuit right. with the Dominion voting systems. And now we have the news not only that Tucker Carlson is out, but that there has been a notable dip in Fox News's stock price as a consequence. Now, you know, it's uh, but it was a couple of dollars, I think, there. It looks zoomed in like that to be perhaps more significant than it actually is. And these things do tend to happen and bounce back. Sure. It doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be long-term consequences for Fox. But I wonder what you make of Fox's future absent Tucker Carlson. Yeah, I mean, we're still continuing to process this. I, think I said it a bunch of times in the last segment. This is just huge news. Yeah. Um, he did not get a final show. His final show was Friday. Um, again, I'm speculating. It, it doesn't seem to me like he knew that this was going to be the end last week. Um, so I, I suggest, I, I would suspect that something was 
spraying on him in the now it was maybe not you're being fired it might have been we want you to make a statement or there's going to be new rules for your show mm -hmm. or there's going to be something that he just wasn't willing to do and he walked um, because I, I I wouldn't necessarily think they would get rid of him following this Dominion lawsuit being handled with a payment rather than a guilty judgment or some kind. Uh, I don't know if it's possible that a secret requirement of the deal they reached with Dominion was getting rid of Tucker. I don't know if that's even possible or if there's no way that wouldn't, that seems like something it would leak out, but. Yeah, no, I, look, the timing of this and the posture of this suggests that to, it was not Tucker's choice. Would you agree with that? That if Tucker knew and was choosing to leave on his own volition, that he would have had a final show, he would have said something about it. I mean, it, it might have been his choice, but they projects. wanted something moving forward. They they wanted to make changes to the show that he was unwilling to do, so he walked right, away. Which I would argue makes it not his choice, that he was okay, basically sure. pushed, yeah, yeah. pushed out of the show. That being said, you know, I think the real question is, what does Tucker do next? How much animosity is there with uh, Fox News? And how is he going to frame his departure? I think there's a real interesting case to be made by Tucker Carlson that Fox News was in the Donald Trump business, that as we heard from the Dominion disclosures, he had his own skepticism of Donald Trump. He said that he hated Donald Trump, that he was looking forward to a day where he could ignore Donald Trump. And he could frame some of his, let's say, excesses at Fox or some of his lesser takes at Fox as part of being part of that machine from which he's now free. You could really double down on the idea of him being an independent news creator, someone who's no longer beholden to the corporate machine, who's able to call more balls and strikes, and to give less biased opinions on the Republican primary race, which stands to be really interesting. He has partnered with certain people on the left, like Glenn Greenwald and Jimmy Dore, offering them opportunities to come on his show and talk about left issues, like anti-war issues, like Julian Assange. Um, and if we saw more mm -hmm. of that and more of a genuine embrace of a kind of um, populism that isn't quite so committed to the future, the positive future of the Republican Party, I think he could carve mm -hmm. out a really interesting space for himself and one that could hurt Don, uh, I mean, Fox more as they are less able to capture that He's part clearly of the not going to be able to work with so-called left populists like AOC when she's calling for him to face criminal penalties right. for speaking his mind. Right. So that shows you the difficulty that there will be there. But AOC, you know, I got to tell you, for those of you who aren't really in the left media space, is very much um, on the outs yeah. with the core of the left as well. She recently did a, a very rare interview with a left media outlet, David Sirota over at The Lever, and he took questions from this audience and put them to AOC. So there were some substantive questions there about why, for instance, she voted to crush the rail strike, uh, a vote that that leftist um, union people have pointed out is completely antithetical to what it means to be a, a pro-worker leftist, like AOC uh, presents herself as being. Um, and her answer wasn't great. And people criticized her roundly for it. I had Shama Sawant, a um, social city councilwoman from Seattle on my show today, just really tearing apart AOC's record on that. And the way she's behaved for most of her time in Congress. So I do think there is a realignment that's happening on the left as well as on the right about what it really means to be a populist, what it means to be captured by the Democratic Party. And to the extent that AOC or others might have been captured by the Democrats, I think that Tucker Carlson has an argument that his increasing independence from Fox News as kind of a uh, branch of Republican 
media, the Republican media sphere, can make him a more powerful interlocutor and ha grow a much larger audience, and one that includes increasing numbers of people from the left. Mm. Like it or not. Well, we'll have more rising right after this. He's obsessed with me. He's going to any means possible to destroy my life and our lives. Why? To shift blame on somebody else. If you look at it, Fox News, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Ted Cruz, Gates, they're all telling us before this thing that it was stolen. So you tell me, who has more impact on people, them or me? Epps, once a loyal Fox News watcher, told us he doesn't understand how he got cast as the villain. The Epps version is more mundane. They believed the 2020 election had been stolen from Donald Trump and considered January 6th a legitimate protest. It was a sloppy election. And then to top that off, you have talking heads reporting that there's problems with the voting machines and different things like that. The election's stolen. So, yeah, we had concerns. I, I wanted to be there. I wanted to witness this with my own eyes. That was last night's 60 Minutes sit-down conversation with Ray Epps, a former professional basketball player who attended the January 6th riot at the Capitol, who later became the center of right-wing ideas about uh, what might have happened, that he perhaps was planted by the FBI to egg on supporters of President Trump. Here's what Epps had to say about that theory that he gave marching orders to January 6th rioters. As closely as you can remember, what exactly did you say to him? Dude, we're not here for that. The police aren't the enemy. Something like that. Did anyone from the federal government direct you to be here at the Peace Circle at this time? No. No one from the FBI? No. Your old comrades with the Oath Keepers? No. I think what is so damning about the video is that there's a barrier there. The barrier gets knocked down, and a police officer, a female police officer, gets knocked down. And the mob, including you, walk over the barrier and march on right. toward the Capitol. Why didn't you stop to help this police officer who was, who was knocked over? When she was knocked down, and I started to go towards her to help her up, and I saw a billy club over here in the corner of my eye, and I thought, you know, they're going to think I'm part of this. And finally, here's what 60 Minutes showed of Epps talking with fellow protesters and rioters in the run-up to January 6th. Put it out there. I'm probably going to go to jail for Tomorrow, we need to go into the Capitol. Into the Capitol. What? No! To summon the crowd, Epps seemed so over the top, he must have been a government agent, a Fed sent to entrap them. When so this is an interesting story with a lot of dynamics. Now, to be clear, there is no, there's no evidence, no one has presented any evidence that Ray Epps was, uh, worked, was an informant for the FBI or national law enforcement and was, you know, trying to egg on protesters to enter the Capitol because he was taking orders from the federal government. That's the, that's the idea coming from some conservative people. It's just an idea. There isn't any evidence of it 
at all. Um, he was involved, he had a history with the Arizona Oath Keepers, and we do have plenty of examples of people uh, who are part of militia-type groups having had contact with the FBI, being paid informants of the FBI, the Gretchen Whitmer, mm -hmm. governor of Michigan, kidnapping thing actually did end up being a situation where right. the supposed kidnappers were substantially motivated by directions from law enforcement. Law enforcement was paying them, in mm -hmm. some cases, to carry to move forward with the plan so that they could arrest other participants. So it is not it's not a crazy idea to think that could be sure. possible. Law enforcement has massive infiltration into the kinds of right-wing groups that were present at the Capitol. And you see him making those, those claims. And actually, the other protesters suspect he's a Fed because he's inducing them mm -hmm. to commit trespassing. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and actually, serial attendees of, of right-wing gatherings, uh, like they, 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 they know. They, 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 their podcast people are always saying, like, if someone is telling you to do something illegal, that person's a Fed. Mm -hmm. Like, it's, it's kind of a, it's a, like a running joke now. Mm -hmm. So that's all, that's all the case. Uh, so he was interviewed on 60 Minutes. There's a big 60 Minutes piece about Ray Epps. And I do think it's interesting that he has become a very sympathetic figure for media people. There was a, there's been a lot of New York Times reporting on him and the harassment he's faced and that he had to close down his, his shop. There's not a lot of sympathy for people involved in January 6th in general from the mainstream media. There's a lot of like you know, make sure we get them all, lock them all up. And, and he is, is just, because he's part of this right-wing theory, it's like the media has adopted him as like, oh, he was the good January 6th guy. You well, know, he didn't go in. Wait a minute. And he's seen the light, <laughs> and he knows that, minute, he knows now the election wasn't stolen. Let's, let's take a few steps back. The reason that, that the evidence, you're right, there is no real evidence, but the soft evidence, the circumstantial evidence that some conservatives have pointed to, that mm -hmm. Ray Epps, was a Fed, was him getting um, uh, some uh, lighter treatment uh, in terms of not, uh, in terms of the, the, the criminal consequences of having participated in right. the Now, to be clear, he didn't go into the Capitol. So. Right. And that has been the pushback. Well, it's, it's, sure. it's in line with what his actual behaviors are. But I think the, the core conceit is this. The core question is, why has uh, Epps been the focus of, I think someone said something like 20 uh, Tucker Carlson segments? There has, it seems to be, from an independent you know, outsider's perspective, an effort to characterize Epps, how, whatever you think of him, as the driving force, a major driving force behind the insurrection, whatever mm -hmm. you want to call the events of 1-6, and the choice to enter the Capitol unlawfully in a way that seems to deflect blame from Donald Trump, who for weeks was talking about Stop the Steal, encouraging people to go rally down by the Capitol, who said any number of statements that he ultimately, there was an impeachment hearing over, but regardless of whether you think he should have been impeached or anything like that, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, the idea that one guy in a crowd has more responsibility and is being focused on more by the conservative media as instigating what happened on 1-6 than the president of the United States who created the whole stop this steal phenomenon to begin with, was lying about mismanagement of vote, voting machines and a stolen election and telling people to amass in exactly the way that they did. That is what that is what people object I mean, to. And I think that that is why some liberals have decided to rally behind apps, not because they like an, a former Oath Keeper, but because they're pushing back against the effort to shift responsibility from Donald Trump as president of the United States at the time to some random guy in the crowd. Right. Now, to be clear, he did, uh, Epps tested, uh, texted his nephew as the, the 
riot was happening, um, saying that he was the mastermind and he was bragging or gloating about his involvement. Right, you could say that was, and what he said subsequently is he regrets saying that. It was just a boast. It was not true. Um, he has attempted to, he attempted to portray himself up until it became clear that there would be crim criminal repercussions for people entering the Capitol. He attempted to spin himself as someone very involved and a, like a like a leader of the effort here to you know defend um, Trump and 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 push back on what they all described as a stone election which is not the case it's not a stone election so I I, I mean if you <laughs> when you tell people that you're the guy and you're very involved and you're orchestrating it and you're in charge a lot of them are gonna believe you and yeah. uh, it, there, there, it is not certainly not crazy to think that someone inducing right-wing people to commit a crime like trespassing, who has been in the Oath Keepers, which is particularly a militia group that has had a lot of involvement with law enforcement over the years. Uh, none of that is is crazy. Now, like I said, there is actual, but, but actually no evidence, and I don't find the evidence that he was not charged very—some um, people on the right yeah. have said, well, that's—, that's that he was not charged, that's the evidence. Positive. But yeah. he didn't actually go into the Capitol. It sounds like other people at his level involvement have also not been charged. Yeah. So I'm not but also to what that. purpose? Let's say that Epps was a Fed and mm -hmm. was standing there and was cheering everybody on. Okay. Like, the, does the fact that there was oh, one... No, no, no. But in terms of what the, the broader implication of mm -hmm. people focusing... As far as... Like, I, I think many liberals would be happy to lock them up, throw away the queue. Who cares? The fundamental issue, I think, for folks who are defending Epps, as it were, is it because they like Epps or they mm -hmm. think he makes Republicans look bad? It's whether or not he is being weaponized to deflect the ultimate responsibility of Donald Trump. If he, if he was a Fed, that doesn't change that Donald Trump lied about the election results, told people to protest, and contributed to the toxic mix that ultimately led to people going into 1-6. Do we think that Omar, that, 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 that Epps, Omar Epps, that Epps standing there by himself outside of the Capitol or going on, on Twitter saying, we got, a, we got a rally, we got a riot at the Capitol, would have had the impact, the outcome of 1-6, but for Donald Trump. Well, That's the fundamental issue. I, I, don't, I don't think I agree with that. I, I think that Donald Trump, that, that Epps alone could have created a, a riot at the Capitol from just tweeting well, from a solitary well, Twitter there's, Again, there's no evidence that there is, but, but you said, let's do the thought experiment. If Epps and a few others are all FBI people with like instructions to cause a riot. I mean, yeah, it was, it, it looked to me, I, w I was there, I was covering it, it looked to me like a kind of spontaneous thing where the people at the front of the pack started smashing windows. Why were they were being goaded to do that. Why were well, people yes, there? Obviously they were there, but Trump didn't specifically say to do anything um, criminal or smashy. I think. I have, on the show many times, blamed him for stoking the fires by saying a lot of things that were not true. But look, if the proximate cause is there be people being paid by the FBI uh, doing immediate goading of people to commit criminal trespassing and smash windows, no, I think that would be a huge deal. Yeah, uh, it's something of which there's no evidence for. There's okay, right. no well, evidence for it. You said to do the it. thought experiment. But no, there's, there's no, no evidence. No, but that's sure. the problem. There's no evidence for it, and yet Tucker Carlson has done dozens of segments mm -hmm. on this guy trying to create the perception that this is where the blame lies and not on Donald Trump. Now, I'm not going to sit here. Look, Black Lives Matter protests, some of them have done things that are I wouldn't support. Some of them have done things that I would support. Mm -hmm. Some of those things are property violence that I think is maybe 
more uh, connected to the, the the problem of that they're trying to address, like what they did to the police station in Minneapolis, which was overwhelmingly supported by the public at the time. And some of it seems more frivolous and, and not uh, well tethered to advancing their political goals. But because I find out that one in one instance, two instances, three instances, it's an op and it's the feds trying to make it Black Lives Matter look bad. I'm going to say the entire movement isn't about what it is or that people aren't acting on their own volition in large part. If I sat here and said and said, tried to pretend that the feds being involved in one case it, like it invalidates everything that's ever been done in the name of Black Lives Matter across the world, it would be deeply suspicious. And people would say, oh, look, here goes Black Lives Matter trying to offshore responsibility for what has happened. That's exactly what's happening here. But instead of an entire movement, it's one guy, one guy who's being spoken of and, and more accountability no, put no. on his shoulders than the president of the United States of America. Okay. It, it, this is, again, an if, because there's no evidence. But if, if like, um, if like, the riots and the, like the looting and burning of targets and such were being done by Black Lives Matter activists because there were feds among them yeah. saying we're going to. Yeah, that would be a huge deal. Yeah, huge and, and, and deal. Would that would shape. That would redirect right. culpability from right. the organization or the activists if, to the federal if, government, if there, as would in if this case. There were evidence for that, and if sure. in the absence of evidence, every single news report was simply, "Oh, it wasn't our fault. We think we think it's feds. We think it's feds. We think it's feds." Yeah. Then it would be an obvious. It would be obvious what the media rationale for that would be, what the political rationale for doing that would be. So all I'm looking at and what Democrats are trying to say is that the political rationale for Tucker Carlson doing 20 odd segments on Epps in I don't know how many he has, he's ever done about Donald Trump in one sex. I'm not going to make mm -hmm. any claims about that. But the perception is, the what has been identified is, an effort to focus on him. And this is what Epps said in the clip. How am I the one that's responsible for one six when Donald Trump is right there? That's the core issue. And if there was some acknowledgment, more acknowledgment of Donald Trump's role in this, I don't think that anybody would really care what happens. I mean, from the, a left perspective, a liberal perspective, mm -hmm. I don't think they're invested in Epps beyond that he is being scapegoated for what ultimately was Donald Trump's responsibility. Well, okay, but he's being scapegoated uh, uh, under the assumption that he is not a Fed, which, which there's, there's no, no evidence. evidence. So fine. But if that were to change, then I would feel differently about it. But uh, we got to see some evidence of that. And I agree with you that so far, no one in the right-wing media orbit has really has made the case. And there's some 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 not so convincing stuff out there. But we will continue to follow this with great interest, and we'll have more rising in just a moment. Breaking news, we have yet another high-profile cable news host departure to announce. This just in, Don Lemon is out at CNN, of course, coming after the news that Tucker Carlson and Fox News have parted ways. So this is quite a day so far. In a statement posted to his Twitter, Lemon said, quote, I was informed this morning by my agent that I have been terminated by CNN. I am stunned after 17 years at CNN. Would have thought that someone in management would have had the decency to tell me directly. At no time was I ever given any indication that I would not be able to continue to do the work I've loved at the network. It is clear there are some larger issues at play. With that said, I want to thank my colleagues and the many teams I have worked with for an incredible run. They're the most talented journalists in the business, and I wish them all the best. Statement from Chris Licht, chairman and CEO of CNN, says to my colleagues, CNN and Don have parted ways. Don will forever be a part of the CNN family. We thank him for his contributions over the past 17 years. We wish him well and will be cheering for him on his future endeavors. CNN this morning has been on the air for nearly six months, and we're committed to its success. 
Yeah, well, when he alludes to other issues at play, I think a lot of folks are going to be thinking about some recent controversies he's been mixed up in. Of course, who can forget um, his little colloquy about how Nikki Haley was past her prime? But what we learned is that that's maybe just the tip of the iceberg. Variety did a longer profile earlier this month titled Don Lemon's Misogyny at CNN Exposed, malicious texts mocking female co-workers and, quote, diva-like behavior. There were a number of instances, including apparently calling one of his producers fat to her face, getting into a weird um, spat with uh, co-host Kyra Phillips, who was later taken from her show. But when she landed a, a gig um, uh, on CNN reporting on a, on a, on a reporting um, excursion and assignment in Iraq that he really wanted to be a part of, apparently he sent her threatening texts anon anonymously that were traced back to him. People didn't know what the actual result of the internal investigation over that were, was, but they were separated um, as a, as a co-hosting team after that. And it seems to be really part and parcel of a pattern of behavior. So perhaps mm -hmm. it should not be so surprising that he was let go. Perhaps what's more surprising was that it took this long. Sure. I don't think any of us were nearly as shocked to hear that Don Lemon was being let go as we were to hear that Fox News is parting ways with Tucker Carlson, right. um, even though, as we talked about in the other segments, uh, you know, there was the ongoing the, the legislation, the, uh, the lawsuit with Dominion. There was going to be future lawsuits. Potentially, it has something to do with that. The timing would certainly seem to suggest that, although we don't know for sure. Don Lemon is someone who has been a little bit mired in controversy, as you noted, uh, as of late. Um, was someone who actually had shown kind of basic contempt for his colleagues in the realm of the journalism they were doing. Um, there was the Jesse, he very much bought into the Jesse Smollett um, mm -hmm. allegations. Yeah, that, that was he had so long ago. Hate crimed. Yeah. Um, he he got on the wrong side of a lot of black folks by participating in some of the um, kind of pull up your pants, uh, you know, stop sagging kind of uh, mm. sh shaming of, you know, clothing and things like that as an excuse for why there were various disparities in the community. Um, he, in 2014, uh, got a lot of pushback when he told a Bill Cosby rape accuser that she should have, that she could have stopped an attack by biting the comedian's private parts. Um, he is where will we turn to uh, <laughs> now for that commentary that he's gone? Hmm. I, I, we were we were joking during the Tucker segment that or not joking, but saying that he very easily could go somewhere else and hang up his own shingle and start a, a podcast or a YouTube show or a Substack or anything he wanted to and immediately have an enormous audience because that's Tucker. the power of him. Right. That Don Lemon is not in the same position. In fact, arguably, CNN sure. has been shuffling him around from show to show um, without recouping much in the way of audience shares. Uh, he doesn't seem to have the same pull as certain other media figures. And it is unclear why, especially given this long record of bad behavior, they've, met, they've, they've decided to keep him around as long as they have. Um, for those of you who maybe have forgotten the latest uh, controversy, I think we have a clip of that uh, fracas over the Nikki Haley uh, critique. Let's take a Let's look. Let's play that one more time, please. This whole talk about age makes me uncomfortable. I think that I think it's the wrong road to go down. She says people, you know, politicians or something are not in their prime. Nikki Haley isn't in her prime. Sorry. When a woman is considered to be in her prime in her 20s and 30s and maybe 40s. What do you that's talk not Wait. I, That's not according to me. Prime for what? Uh, it depends. I mean, it's just like prime. If you look it up, it'll. If you look, if you Google when is a woman in her prime, it'll say twenties, thirties, and forties. I don't necessarily. Forties. Oh, I got it. I'm not decade. saying I agree with that, 
So I think she has to be careful about saying that, well, you know, politicians aren't in their prime. You need to need qualify. To are you talking about prime for, like, childbearing? Or are you talking about the message, prime I'm just for being president? What the facts are. Google it. Everybody at home, when is a woman in her prime? It says 20s, 30s, and 40s. And I'm just saying Nikki Haley should be careful about saying that politicians are not in their prime. And they need to be in their prime when they serve. Because she wouldn't be in her prime, according to Google, you know, Google or whatever it is. <laughs> this whole Man, that never gets old. And when you read this variety piece, it's wild how many of these instances he's had. Apparently, he was on a panel with S.E. Cup last September, and she was stumbling over a statistic. She just, you know, was trying to come up with it. And he said to her, is it fair, is it fair to say this because I'm not a mommy, but is it mommy brain? <laughs> <laughs> stop. Just, just don't. Just don't. Just stop. So remember, CNN has asked a lot of people. There was the whole Cuomo debacle over the brothers, you know, a media brother helping a political mm -hmm. brother kind of massage a very difficult political situation he was in during Brian the Brian Stelter years. exiting. Brian Stelter. And over and over again, Lemon has yeah. survived the axe. This is the end of an era. I will be looking forward to seeing what he does next. Uh, Stelter was pointing out with respect to both of these individuals, uh, Tucker and Don, Stelter was saying that he got a final show. Um, you know, he was let go, but it was he was allowed to do a, a, a final yeah, show, and this will not be the case for either of those individuals. Again, we don't know exactly what the Tucker situation is. The the Don Lemon case, we do know he, he was fired. Yeah, and Don Very Lemon abruptly. seems pretty chatty uh, based on that the the statement mm -hmm. we read out earlier that he. Just tweeted out a few minutes before we started rolling this. So I suspect we're going to hear more from him about how he perceives that he was wronged here. So we will give you updates on that when it happens. These White House correspondence dinner parties this weekend are going to be <laughs> everybody fearing for their for their jobs and their lives. Something something is happening. Do you think that this is there? There's a relationship between these two huge firings happening on the same day. I mean, no, or not firing. We don't know what happened with Tucker, but I, I don't know what the relationship would be. It is a wild coincidence that these are. I mean, Don Lemon leaving is not as earth shattering as Tucker leaving is. It's, it's still a pretty big deal. I mean, the 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 scuttlebutt in the news space is to say if you want to bury something, you release it on a Friday. Yeah. So these are both oh, coming they, out on Monday. So maybe the Tucker thing. Happened, and then and they're trying they to decide. Here is how we bury it: we fire Don Levin. We, we are we are go on Operation <laughs> Past His Prime. I mean, it very much is the lesser of the two stories. Yeah. But there is this other way in which it becomes attached now to the Tucker Carlson story and might have more legs. What we need is for these things to happen in three. So who's next, Robbie? <laughs> MSNBC has to has to cut has someone. To offer up someone to, uh, as tribute. <laughs> well, not us, not us. The threes will not be not be on uh, on this little little mini <laughs> rising network. Um, all right, more rising right after this. Wait a second! What a great way to end the week. Yeah, truly, that was a great segment and. I'm just grateful that you came on, and I'm especially grateful for the pie. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Employee of the week. We're going to just make it of the year. Tyler Morrell of Coco's Pizza. That's it for us for the week. We'll be back. By the way, the entire episode of Let Them Eat Bugs, not quite as good as pizza, streaming now on Fox Nation. Use the promo code ORIGINALS for 30 days free. And we'll be back on Monday. In the meantime, have the best weekend with the ones that you love, and we'll see you then.
We'll be back on Monday. Those were the final moments of former Fox News host Tucker Carlson's last show on the network, which aired last Friday. We're learning more about what exactly led to the primetime host departure. New reporting from The Washington Post alleges that it was Carlson's comments about Fox management, as revealed in the Dominion case, that played a role in Carlson's departure. So this is from a source inside Fox who talked to The Washington Post. So you always have to take these things with a grain of salt. Um, my reading is this would be one of the more plausible reasons, actually, uh, for why they might take action against him. Um, some of the information revealed that he had said things, you know, at, at any company, if you're caught, you know, in public, sta private statements that become public, you're caught bad-mouthing the boss, the management, the leadership. That's not just true at Fox News. That's true everywhere. You can get yourself in trouble. You can get yourself fired for that reason. So that. So that would, that would be Dominion connected because it's because of Dominion that some of this came out without specifically being like they were getting rid of him because of the lawsuit. So that all that kind of checks several different boxes here for me because I don't see why I don't see why they would fire him now having survived the lawsuit in that they, they don't have to go to a jury trial and have to make some kind of apology. They have more things coming down the pipeline, well. obviously. So I would find this a more likely reason. Well, for this action, then they're specifically doing something to him because of the Dominion lawsuit. Well, there is another lawsuit pending. Sure. So they're not out of the woods at all yet. And the scenario that was created because of the things that were said behind the scenes are ultimately what gave Fox liability exposure. I, I just can't stress this enough. This isn't an issue of what Fox said out loud, what aired on the show. This is the issue about the contrast between what aired on the show and what was said behind the scenes. Now, Murdoch and others were all complicit in this as well, talking about how they were afraid of a Newsmax competitor and how bad it would be if Trump and Newsmax became aligned and Fox got left behind, and how even though he um, you know, hated Trump, uh, Tucker Carlson did, that there was this pressure to still do Trumpism on the show, and then he went so far as to pressure uh, other Fox News um, employees to be uh, sanctioned, fired, uh, for not towing the, uh, the birther—sorry, uh, not birther—stop um, the steal line mm -hmm. uh, sufficiently. And so there's all of this mixed messaging, where he knows that there are lies that are being said on the air, but wants them to continue because it's advantageous to Fox's bottom line. And, and Murdoch and the rest are all a part of this, so I do think it's perhaps unfair to exclusively punish um, Tucker Carlson for his participation in this. But the fact that those private messages were shared is what fundamentally created Fox News's exposure. If all of these conversations had been had by the water cooler, in person at a bar, at somebody's private house, it would be a non-issue. But we have evidence of these conversations because they were texted to the, between hosts and sent in emails and things like that. Well, sure. but. I mean, when Dominion filed its law, that hap that comes out in discovery, right? They, yeah. been, Dominion didn't know <laughs> there would be this wealth of potentially relevant, incriminating messages when it filed the lawsuit. They filed the lawsuit because of the things said about the company on Fox. Well, we don't. We don't, we don't know what they knew. There could be a lot of things that they suspected, and that's why you make discovery requests. That's, a tr that's true of every lawsuit. That's, I mean, that's why you make discovery requests. I would presume that they wouldn't go down this road knowing that they had absolutely no claim at all. And they don't have a claim but for the private statements. Like the, the, the bar, as you pointed out so, so many times, and it's very high for proving defamation, as it should be. 
But the reason why this is one of the best defamation cases that anybody had ever seen against a news organization is precisely because of all of this information. So that's, that's all I'm saying about that. But also the, uh, from the Dominion perspective, it's also worth noting that, you know, David Sirota reported last week that Dominion's going to, uh, sorry, that Fox is going to be able to write off a lot of this. But at the end of the day, that's a nearly $8 million price tag on this settlement. $800 million. $800 million uh, price tag on this settlement. So looking at Tucker Carlson and some of these other very high-salaried people on the payroll, there's an argument that they just are forced to start to cut corners here. And as the juice of these people worth the squeeze. Tucker yeah, Carlson apparently earns $35 million a year from Fox News. That adds up. You pointed out that Dan uh, bon Bongino? Dan Bongino uh, couldn't come up with a number in his negotiations. Uh, they, they couldn't come to an agreement. This is according to Bongino himself. He said nothing... Uh, conspiracy, anything out there, we just couldn't reach a satisfying agreement, so we're parting ways. And that was last week. And he earned only, compared only compared to Tucker Carlson, but $7 million a year. And a lot of these people, they've got to be looking at the fact they can go independent, they have names for themselves. If they hang up a shingle on Substack or Rumble or whatever it is, they can probably pull a subscriber base that gets them as much or more money. And it's not an irrational decision. I'm not well. No, I, I don't think it'd be an irrational decision on Tucker's part, but we don't know. But that last episode, I mean, they, they were still airing. They, they were still airing promos. Apparently, this morning for mm. the Vivek Ramaswamy interview on mm. Fox Nation with Tucker. Mm. So this was a last-minute thing. Again, it could be there was a negotiation between the two this weekend that just very became acrimonious and broke down. It could be they wanted him to make a statement or they wanted some change to the show. It could have been a number of things, yeah. but you know, Washington Post says, again, this sounds reasonably solid to me that it was because they didn't like what he'd said about yeah. management. And it could have been they had a fight about it and then, you know, walked yeah. away. Because like you said, he yes, if he wants to stay relevant, absolutely. He will have all sort you know, we're not all beholden on the same cable news model anymore. You can, I mean, our show is, our own show is a testimony to that. We release on YouTube. There's so many things he could do. Rumble. Um, he could like, look at what Megyn Kelly has done from right. leaving Fox, and she's very, very, very successful. So... Well, unsurprisingly, certain liberal media outlets, namely The View, reacted uh, very positively to news of Tucker Carlson's uh, departure from Fox. Let's take a look at that. Word has just come down that Fox News Media and Tucker Carlson have agreed to part ways. <laughs> Wave. <laughs> you know, we'll talk more about it tomorrow because, but we wanted to make sure that we let you know what was going well, on. Well, can I? They sound so happy, but what will they talk about now? <laughs> well, look, Glenn Greenwald has pointed out, uh, he tweeted that Tucker was the cable host who most opposed the U.S. proxy war in Ukraine, denounced CIA, FBI, and DHS for its systemic lies and corruption, devoted himself to a pardon for Julian Assange, objected to regime change efforts in Cuba, and criticized the Trump administration's militarism. Obviously, he is perhaps one of the only cable news hosts that would invite someone like Glenn or someone who's, uh, you know, a leftist like Jimmy Dore on to talk about important issues like freeing Julian Assange. And I, I know a lot of folks will say the bad things he, does, he has said are worse and outweigh the good things that he has done. And I'm sure people will continue that debate for quite some time. But, you know, what do you make of this argument that 
among a bad batch, if you're looking from a left perspective, mm -hmm. Tucker Carlson at least opened the door to some important left issues, having voice on the most popular show on new show on TV. Certainly, uh, I think some of the topics that get discussed on Tucker Carlson tonight would be discussed, you know, wokeness, that kind of thing. It's obviously it's discussed a lot by other hosts on the, the television program. Um, you know, Jesse Waters leads is, leads into Tucker Carlson and hits a lot of those same things. But Tucker really led the way. I think I said this in our earlier discussion about this. He so led the way on foreign policy, um, shepherding the Republican Party and conservative media away from the Bush era to the Trump era. Um, I, I mean, he even in, exerted influence on Trump in this manner. When Trump um, uh, did the bombing, killed, uh, killed Soleimani, Tucker criticized it that mm -hmm. night. Tucker criticized Trump when he thought Trump was deviating mm -hmm. from non-interventionism. Mm -hmm. That is something that might not have happened if you had somebody else in that position. So I think, I think Glenn is completely right yeah. that Tucker, especially on foreign policy, really had an effect on the discourse on Fox News, in right-wing media in general, and even in actual Republican politics. Yeah. This, well. is a, it's a, it's a, this is a party that is skeptical of interventionist voices that did not used to be, and Tucker had a significant influence there. So, More on this story, I'm sure, as it continues <laughs> to reveal itself to us. More Rising after this. Blowback following the Dylan Mulvaney Bud Light partnership is still unraveling. The marketing executive responsible for the controversial collaboration between the trans influencer and, and the beer has taken a leave of absence following the outcry from customers, according to the AP. The internal shakeup at Bud Light's parent company, Anheuser-Busch, includes streamlining changes that put senior marketers closer to brand activities. Meanwhile, podcaster Joe Rogan weighed in after Budweiser aired an advertisement seemingly aimed at inviting patriotic beer lovers back into the base. Let's watch that. You got to watch this Bud Light commercial, this new Bud Light commercial. Find the new it's Bud just, Light commercial. It's, this is like it's the, the dumbest pro-America rah-rah. It's so stupid and cliche. It fucking, it hurts my feelings. It's so dumb. Listen to this. <laughs> this is a company in deep shit, bro. <laughs> and they make things like this. Look, you got the prairies, the ocean, you got a Clydesdale running down the street. A story <gasps> about a beer <laughs> rooted in the heart of America. Found in a community where a handshake is a sure contract. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> So I watched this commercial the other day. It is, <laughs> it is funny in that it's like, like the the mirror image, like the total opposite of uh, the kind of Dylan Mulvaney thing. Like this is like if you're a real American, you know, you ride horses and you love beer and 9/11. There is there's a 9/11 cameo in this in this advertisement. It's almost as if there are a lot of different kinds of Americans. Uh, who are drawn to a lot of different kinds of advertising and that large conglomerates promulgate different kinds of ads to reach different kinds of audience. Remember the Rick and Morty episode? It's one of the Citadel episodes where all the Ricks live together and there's a commercial for this cookie wafer that like is made from some chemical they secrete in like a happy Rick's brain to be like, taste, taste your oh, youth yeah. and your family yeah. adoring yeah. you or something. This is what this reminded me of. <laughs> I mean, like, look, the fact that this is a controversy at all is so 
frustrating, I gotta say. And I really appreciate that Joe Rogan has kind of approached this issue with the levity uh, that it deserves, because it is fr frankly fundamentally absurd. You have people like Chris Rock, who frankly, all due respect, nobody has really talked about or thought of in a solid 10 to 15 years becoming a, a, you know, a, a news headline because he decided to take a gun and shoot up a bunch of Bud Light cans because one of the many, many spokespeople from, a, from a, uh, the brand happens to be a trans person that they just don't like Not very Chris much. Rock. You said— uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Kid, Kid Rock. Rock. Kid, Kid Rock. Rock. My apologies. Kid <laughs> no Rock. Don't slander Chris, Chris Rock. <laughs> Kid Rock. Um, you know, it, and it, it's, 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 getting, it's kind of exhausting. And I think that Joe Rogan laughing about this, basically asking the question, who cares, not only is the right move, but is, I think, where a lot of Americans are getting with this. You can make the argument that the left pushed too far or got over its skis with some of these issues and that phraseology about birthing women and stuff is beyond the pale of what the American public can accept. By the same token, shooting up cans of uh, one of America's classic beers because you don't like one of its spokespeople and pretending like this is a political issue and Ron DeSantis making this the, the keynote of his campaign efforts is also going too far. And most folks just want to live their lives and focus on things other than who's representing a candidate. Well, I saw the Daily Wire people really uh, celebrating that they got one of the Bud Light executives was uh, suspended or something having to do with this. Um, Matt Walsh had a bunch of tweets that were like, this shows that the pressure we exerted worked and we should do more of it. And then I saw some people saying like, well, isn't this just cancel culture now? Aren't you getting people fired for things you disagree with. Yeah. And uh, I, I think the obvious answer to that is just yes, but people of the conservative who are really bought into this, I, I think they think it's fair and that, oh Yeah, well. I mean, they don't have a problem. They. We all want it's to cancel that, our enemies. It's not that cancel culture is fake. I, I don't like when liberals kind of take that line that there's no such thing as cancel culture. It's that everybody thinks that the things that they're trying to cancel are legitimately cancelable. Right. Liberals who think there's no cancel culture, I guess, just think that all firings are just or something. It doesn't seem like a very progressive well, no, thing they, to have. They, they, but, yeah, I mean, they argue that the yeah. people got fired for things that they did wrong. They violated company policy. You know, they got negative feedback, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, look. I, I don't I don't know exactly what's going on here, but with with this per, this person and their choice to to step aside and, and to be replaced, but it doesn't strike me as actually validating their ultimate point. Last week they all had to walk back the boycott because they realized it wasn't actually uh, negatively affecting Bud Bud Light to the extent that it was propping up Dylan Mulvaney's career and making her an increasingly known and increasingly profit uh, profit making entity in the media space. I mean. I can't make heads or tails. I'm seeing a lot of conflicting. We should probably, if we're going to keep talking about this, dive into it a little deeper about whether this was like, a, a, whether this was a good business decision or it was bad. I hear, I've heard both arguments. You, you've tried, you've argued that this campaign was all to the good and has they well, profited it's from not, it. This is, no, I'm saying Dylan Mulvaney is profiting from it. Well, yeah, Dylan Mulvaney came out of nowhere uh, to be a successful brand ambassador, partly because I will say probably because of her own skill in marketing and her own skill at exploiting TikTok and using that platform for to, to, to genuinely make various products seem good. She's likable. She's approachable. Um, Jesse Single over at uh, Blocked and Reported Podcast did a deep dive mm -hmm. with his co-host about Dylan Mulvaney. And even though they 
think the aspects of her kind of persona are a little cringe, they both had to give credit to her ability to really appeal to folks, especially younger folks, across the platform. And so a company deciding to partner with someone who has demonstrated an ability to influence folks is not ridiculous. And the idea that you're telling a company to stop making those kinds of profit-driven decisions because you happen to not be part of the audience they're trying to reach, it's very cringe. It's very like immature and insular to think that every kind of advertising is supposed to be appealing to you. Where's the advertising that appeals to the Robbies of the world? Because I don't, (laughs) I didn't care for the Dylan Mulvaney advertising and I don't care for that advertisement that uh, Joe Rogan made fun of. Do you guys drink beer at your um, D&D roundtables? Some people do. I don't. Okay. So you need to, this is a note out to uh, Budweiser, Anheuser-Busch. You need to do more ads that appeal to the, the... we did drink a beer community. at our last session. Um, we tried this um, this beer that's marketing itself as uh, Dragon Blood beer or something. It's pretty good. <laughs> there you go. It's pretty good. Put put uh, some Harry Potter figures on the can and <laughs> see what that does for Uh-oh. you. <laughs> You're coming for to know me too well. Reasons. I can't surprise you anymore. For many reasons that would be uh, shut down, including marketing alcoholic kids. But Robbie Robbie would be one of those big kids. <laughs> maybe the uh, maybe the new Harry Potter show, whenever that comes out in like ten years will be like adults. It'll be like Euphoria or something where they're, yeah. they're kids ostensibly, yeah. but it's clearly aimed at adults from all the magic drugs and magic sex. <laughs> We're giving you free ideas end, here. End of show thoughts. Tomorrow <laughs> on Rising, we'll be back to bring you all the news that you think, that we think actually is important and you think it's important. It's a partnership, <laughs> this news-making mission we have. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the move, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you later. Bye-bye.